There's a large group of people who are often left out of the climate conversation. There's so much that we can be learning from indigenous communities around the world, for example, who despite contributing the least to climate change are facing some of the worst effects. Let's be brave enough. Like my very young nephew of three years old yesterday was going around the house and was telling me, be brave, be brave. Okay, so we should be brave. I always try to remain optimistic about the future, especially because I work with so many amazing young people every single day who really give me hope that even if our current governmental leaders aren't taking the climate crisis seriously, that the next generation of leaders absolutely will. The British Council presents the climate connection. La connexion climatique. Die Klimakonnektivität. La connexion Climate action in language education. This is episode two, speaking youth to power. Hello and welcome to The Climate Connection, a British Council podcast focusing on climate action in language education. I'm your host, Chris Souton. This is episode two, Speaking Youth to Power, How Young People Are Fighting the Climate Crisis. The Climate Connection. Our first interview this week is with one such activist who has been actively involved in climate-related projects and advocacy work. Juja Mamri is the Director of Impact at Regenerative Creations, an impact fund investing in companies that enable a better and more sustainable world. She is also the UK delegate to the G7 Youth Summit, where she covers climate policy. Welcome to the podcast, Juja. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. So, Juja, perhaps we could begin by you explaining what your role is as the UK delegate to the G7 Youth Summit. So I am one of four UK delegates to the G7 Youth Summit this year. And the Youth Summit is one of the seven official engagement groups for the G7. So we work to put together a list of policy recommendations and a communique with other delegates from the other G7 countries and are ensuring that ministers and leaders are thinking of young people in policymaking. I think what's coming out most prominently is that some of the topics that young people are talking about aren't necessarily on or covered by the UK COP26 presidency's five key campaign areas. And, and one of those key ones is climate migration and what climate displacement looks like. And another one is young people talking about how they see climate change affecting sort of their local area. So young people in coastal towns or young people in um, traditional farming households and what land management looks like. And so I think it's really bringing out the fact that as much as we can talk about the climate crisis and, and we see pictures of destruction happening around the world, actually a, a lot of changes are happening in the UK. And so it's been really great to be able to refocus on the way that the climate crisis is affecting young people in the UK specifically and hearing more about the problems that they're increasingly facing. And do you think those issues would be similar in, in other countries, that emphasis on the localised nature uh, of how people are noticing about climate change, which is taking place? I think so. I think for a lot of us in the UK, we sit in a position where maybe we haven't 
been faced with some of the really drastic effects of climate change so far yet there are people around the world who have been you know dealing with the consequences of the climate crisis for decades now and so i think it's really important to recognize that even if we can't see it that it's happening but also to recognize how it is happening within our own communities and with our own country and so looking at the more marginalized communities within the UK as well as the global south where a lot of the climate devastation is happening but looking at marginalized communities in the UK and how they're already being affected by some aspects of climate change or the climate crisis particularly communities of color are living in areas where there's higher rates of air pollution and the the medical and health consequences of that and just how far reaching it is and it doesn't just exist in sort of okay there's this one catastrophic weather event and and that's when we see climate change but rather in these everyday impacts that are, are happening and like you say with something like air pollution which isn't necessarily directly visible but obviously has a huge and significant impact not only on people's lives but for example on children's learning Um, I think there was a recent study that showed that your race is more indicative of whether you will be affected by air pollution than poverty. And so really bringing in these other aspects of the climate crisis into the conversation, I think for so long it's been siloed as an environmental issue, but really looking at it as wider than that. And with some of the groups that you talk to, Zhuzha, Do you get the sense that young people are optimistic or pessimistic uh, about their futures with regards to the climate? Do they feel empowered to do things or is the feeling more and more of of resignation? As cliche as it sounds, we as young people are going, we're tomorrow's leaders, essentially, and we're going to inherit today's problems tomorrow. And so I think without us having a say in some of the policy that is being drafted or some of the decisions that are being made today, we're going to have to deal with the consequences of either those policies not being inclusive enough, not being far-reaching enough, not being radical enough. And so I think it's really important that young people do have more of a say, I think around any policy area, to be honest, but specifically climate. And what role do you think teachers in the classroom have to play in bringing some of these issues uh, to young people, allowing a space for the discussion of these issues uh, within the classroom? I don't believe I had a strong enough climate education and very much my information around the climate crisis did not come from within the classroom. And so I think there's just more that can be done on on a very simple level of increasing climate education. There was a survey recently that said just 4% of young people surveyed felt that they know a lot about climate change. And so we really need to be changing that statistic. And so I think teachers are in a really powerful position to do that. And I think we need to do it from a very interdisciplinary angle. So you know, my experience was if we learned anything about the environment, it was very much in sort of the science classroom or in geography, but geography isn't even a compulsory subject after a certain age. It needs to be accessible. And I think the the way that it can be the most accessible is that it is embedded across the curriculum. Big part of that is also teacher training and making sure that teachers feel empowered to teach about climate change, because that's another big issue. If teachers don't feel empowered to speak on a topic, then that's going to trickle down and affect the way that young people sort of receive that learning. 
there's a lot of discussions around eco-anxiety in young people. And I think it's also training teachers and how to hold those conversations and hold space for those conversations around the climate crisis in a way that keeps young people engaged. Climate education isn't just important because it helps young people understand how they can sort of adapt their own lives in response to the climate crisis. But it's also because young people are going to be the people who are going to be coming up with the solutions, hopefully, to solve um, some aspects of this crisis. And so I think it needs to be really empowering and young people need to feel like they can be part of the solution. And that really starts in the classroom. So in a sense, it's changing the narrative because, again, it seems to me often when we talk about climate change or when it's in the news, it's always negative. It feels oppressive and it can lead to, like you say, this eco-anxiety. But if we can flip the narrative around a little bit and talk more positively about it, then then that may impact again on on young people and what they feel they are able to do. Yes, exactly. And I, I definitely don't have the answer to this because I think there's there's a fine line between, you know, really imprinting on young people the severity of this crisis. That's important. That needs to happen. It, it can't be seen as something that will happen, you know, in 50 years time and it's down the road and it's not going to affect young people in their lifetimes. But as you said, also making sure that it's done in a way in which young people don't then get scared and sort of run away from it and, and bury their heads in the sand, but rather feel like, okay, this is something that I can be a part of helping to solve. And, and maybe a big part of that is, is really bringing out this narrative of being a collective. Like we're sort of all in this together, even though some communities will be affected more by climate change than others. Like let's bring ourselves together and collaborate and collaboration really being key here to help create some of the solutions. Perhaps one way of doing that as well with with younger people is to focus on things like the green economy and green job. Perhaps I could ask you a little bit about if you see there's a link between climate literacy and financial literacy. Traditionally, they've both been sort of subject areas that young people have had sort of a lack of access to in, in terms of education or at least traditional education. Yet they're both subject areas that will massively affect the way young people live their lives. Post-COVID, we will be in a probably prolonged economic crisis, just like we are currently in a climate crisis. So I think there's an element of, of similarity between the two in the sense that they're both under-talked about yet have massive effects on young people's livelihoods. But at the same time, I also think they influence each other. And so if we can educate young people on how they can use their money for good, then that is so powerful. Being able to understand that your money is your vote and also that you don't have to be particularly wealthy or be an investor or have a ton of savings in order to be able to use your money in this way. So there's a great campaign called Make My Money Matter, which is about demanding that your pension is invested in a better future. I'm working with the big issue that have just launched their new climate solutions fund that can be accessed through a junior ISA. So that's another way that young people can be using, you know, their spare change or any savings they do have to be investing in companies that are positively contributing to solving the climate crisis. I think there's a lot of conversation around the sort of differences and validity, I guess, between individual actions. So So things that we can change in our own lives. So not using plastic straws being an example of that. 
and then the types of changes that need to happen on a much larger and generally corporate level that will really make that shift happen. And I think this is a great way to do both at the same time. So it's, you know, using your individual power as a consumer to be able to influence big changes on a corporate level, because in reality, a lot of young people don't have influence or power in corporate decision making or in the business world. But actually, if we recognize the power that we have collectively as consumers and leverage that so that we are making sure that we're saying, actually, no, I don't want to invest in a company that is still using fossil fuels, or I don't want my pension to be sitting in an investment fund that invests in companies that still use fossil fuels. I think that's a really powerful way for young people to be able to be making a difference, even with a very small amount of money. And if I could ask you all sort of generally, Zhuzhu, on this podcast, we're also interested in the relationship of language and the English language with the climate crisis. From your experience in your work as UK delegate to the G7 Youth Summit, and also more widely in your professional life, how do you see the role of of language impacting the climate crisis? There's a big piece of education that can be done around the language we use in terms of the climate crisis. Like a lot of different things, climate and the environment can often be laden with acronyms and complex terminology, and that can be very inaccessible to a lot of young people, but to especially young people from maybe more marginalised communities. And so I think we need to think really carefully about how we talk about what's happening. A lot of people are adopting the phrase climate emergency. There are problems that come out of using the term emergency and what that means in already quite militarised contexts and how emergency or climate emergency can be used um, in certain countries as a way to prolong states of emergency, etc. So I think really thinking intentionally about the language we use is so important. And also to say that it's not just about sort of the words that we're using or the terminology that we're using in English when we're talking about the climate crisis, but it's also the languages that we are using to talk about it in. So for example, the Y7 is predominantly in English. And a lot of these conversations happen predominantly in English or other major world languages. And because climate change is is not constrained to any one border, And it really needs the involvement of people all around the world in order to come up with solutions. It means that we need to be having discussions in a wide variety of languages. Zhuzha, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks to Zhuzha for her time and for sharing her passion and knowledge about climate action. If you want to know more, you can listen to my full interview with Zhuzha at our website, www.britishcouncil.org slash climate hyphen connection. Hello, everyone. I just want to share my thoughts on how including indoor plants in our classrooms has impacted our learning behavior. We have 12 potted plants in each classroom, which helps provide clean air. This makes our passive learning into active learning, and I'm thankful for this. Thank you. La connexion climatique. In this episode, From the Field takes us to countries including India and Turkey via the small Eastern European country of Moldova, as we hear from an inspirational project being run by META, the Moldova English Teachers Association 
which brings together young people from around the world to discuss climate-related issues. My name is Larissa Gudun, I'm the founder of Moldovan English Teachers Association and also the initiator of the EcoCo project in Moldova. When we started this in back in August, uh, I wasn't sure it will anyhow work. First of all, I never heard about, sorry to say this, but I never heard about Moldova. When I pronounce that also, uh, I first of all used to say Moldova. I even didn't used to spell T properly. Hi, my name is Andrea. I'm coming from uh, Moldova. Hello everyone, I'm Dubyani Papalkar. I'm 14 years old and I'm from India. Hello, my name is Makano Bogdan and I, yeah, from, I'm from Moldova. Hello, my name is Yusufa Benzet. I am from Antalya, Turkey. I am 12 years old. We live in a world that allows us to make changes and take action. But despite all this progress, I am very surprised that the humanity still don't understand and deny the one of the biggest problems we are facing, and I'm talking about the climate change. The environment is our home and I think homes should be treated and must be treated very carefully and thoughtfully. The greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else would save it. So take actions. If you take small actions, it will be a bigger change tomorrow. Since we are living in such a critical time where we are on the verge of witnessing the collapse of environmental structure due to human intervention, I feel like it plays a really big importance nowadays. People are seeking to relax and have a good time in parks, somewhere in the forest. But as time passes, we are seeing more concrete jungles than real jungles. I want to talk about the issues. Although the issues we talk about are the same, but approaches are different. Now, when I see these wonderful kids here who are so, so enthusiastic about this and about this matter, and they are ready to become uh, volunteers to, I don't know, spread the word further, to do some other actions and some other things which are very important for all of us. It happens very often that I hear people complaining about the difficulties they have to go through in while fighting uh, the climate crisis. And uh, of course, I cannot uh, disagree because uh, we really can't uh, can't see the government supporting this fight. But uh, that doesn't make it impossible. A couple of years ago, I uh, participated in events for cleaning the environment and planting trees. I'm really happy with the work that I put in that time. And I'm planning to do something similar as soon as possible. As of my day-to-day -day life, I start recycling everything I can. Aluminum cans, plastic bottles, plastic wrapping, everything. It's a great thing to spread awareness because there are many people who are not knowing about the changes which are going to happen in the world in the future. I try to you know, make uh, create awareness with my friends, families, and they were like, oh, like thank God you told me we were not knowing these all things. So I was like, 
okay you should know this and you should plant some trees so uh, like they all done it they had all done it and i felt very happy like it's another kind of happiness if we plant some plant like trees and plants it's a very different kind of happiness last one year i spent my time mostly at home because of covid 19 pandemic but i tried to change my lifestyle i tried to attend different youth organizations i recycle different materials project water and electricity to have a secure future and to have a clean planet around us in the next 50 years we need to start teaching the future generation that this is the most important topic to be paid attention to and that's why we've initiated a range of activities dedicated to this topic to raise awareness and to make the youth a part of the action and part of the solution for the problem hearing uh, different students i uh, found uh, something new about pesticide pollution you know i mean an issue i didn't even consider it an issue because i'm coming from a country where everything is natural we grow everything at home therefore no pesticides no uh, harmful chemicals and that after the meeting i informed myself and understood that it is actually a real problem and uh, that's why i was very thankful and i'm more sure now that uh, making such meetings international with uh, people coming from other countries is uh, is very important i'm really impressed how much i've learned through these meetings to my surprise i learned new words and trained my skill of understanding different accents just because these meetings were in international scale before this i interacted mainly with native speakers of english and that really limited me and my understanding so to say and i'm really happy to get more experience in this sphere it's a very great thing just for me to have a conversation with around the world and all the students are just having conversations with each other like i don't know it's a very great thing and i feel very fortunate to be the part of this meta moldova thank you I recommend people to attend the meetings. The world is our world. It's so precious. Everyone has responsibilities. So those meetings are very important. Yes, not only for one or two people, but for everybody because we need to save our planet. We need to do something. Let's be brave enough. Like my very young nephew of three years old yesterday was going around the house and was telling me, "Be brave, be brave." Okay, so we should be brave. I think that if I change myself, if my mom changes herself, if my dad changes himself, uh, we make a big community, and therefore the changes will come. I feel inspired. I want to do more. <laughs> Now you inspired me to continue. Thank you for that. The Climate Connection. In our second interview this week, we speak to Sofia Kayani. Sofia is an Iranian-American climate activist. She is the founder and executive director of Climate Cardinals, an international non-profit with 8,000 volunteers in more than 40 countries, working to translate climate information into more than 100 languages. She is also a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, 
and represents the United States as the youngest member on the inaugural United Nations Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. So, Sophia, can you tell us about the work of Climate Cardinals and what motivated you to set it up in the first place? Yeah, uh, Climate Cardinals is an international youth-led nonprofit working to make climate education more accessible to people who don't speak English. And I was really inspired to start it after going to Iran in middle school and realizing that my relatives knew very little about climate change because there was almost no information available in Farsi, which is their native language. And what's your ambition for Climate Cardinals over the long term? Um, I hope that Climate Cardinals will continue to translate climate information and then hopefully be able to disseminate that through school curriculum around the world. Um, We've already translated over 500,000 words of climate information, so it would be awesome if by the end of the year we're able to reach one million. Um, And like I said, we really want to make sure that once we have this information translated, that we're giving it to the relevant partners who can really help to teach it in schools and other uh, educational manners. And so you're working uh, a lot with schools at the moment and directly with with teachers and students themselves. Could you sort of explain a little bit about the the process of of how it works? Yeah, the way that Climate Cardinals works is we have 8,000 student volunteers in over 41 countries. Um, And so they're the ones who translate the climate information for us in exchange for community service hours. And why do you uh, see language as such an important component uh, in the fight against the climate crisis? So of the 10 countries most vulnerable to climate change, nine of them are not a majority English speaking. Um, And so because there are so many people who are being disproportionately affected by climate change who don't speak English, I think it's very, very important to have this information available in other languages so that the people who are most vulnerable to climate change effects really know what's happening to them and know what they can do and what their uh, governmental representatives can do to avert this crisis. And do you see a a similar issue, say, with um, the the language at at events like COP26 and so on, the the dominant languages used uh, are English or or other dominant languages rather than minority languages? Uh, Would you like to see a change in policies uh, in terms of the, the medium used in those discussions as well? Yeah, I mean, well, the UN provides um, their information available in the six UN languages, but those six UN languages only account for about um, 50% of the world's, less than 50% of the world's speaking population. So I would just generally like to see a greater um, outreach effort and more like resources put towards commissioning translations. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean that like there needs to be additional discussions conducted in other languages more so that those discussions that are happening should be translated into other languages so that participants can watch it and understand what's happening. You've just been appointed as a representative for the United States on the UN Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. Could you tell us a little bit about what that role involves? Yeah, so it's the Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. So I, along with six other young people from around the world, Uh, We meet with the secretary general and give him feedback on his climate strategy for 2020 and 2021. 
Um, and so we really just inform him on the work that we're doing and consultations that we're holding with young people from around the world um, and in hopes to influence his perspective to really take into account what young people are worried about. And what are some of the things that young people are worried about? What are you hearing in those discussions um, I think it really varies, but uh, a lot of the things that I've heard about is focusing on environmental justice, making sure that we're tackling environmental racism and the fact that climate change disproportionately affects people of color. Um, and also uh, focusing on gender and climate issues, since the UN says that about 80% of the people displaced by climate change are women. Uh, so really taking this intersectional approach towards the climate crisis and making sure that we are helping the most vulnerable is some of the common themes that I often hear when speaking to other young people. For me, what I think is the best to do is to focus on environmental education because I'm not yet a policymaker. And I mean, I haven't finished my university and I still think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of climate change awareness. I mean, just a few years ago, 40 percent of adults in the world had never heard about climate change. And there's still a sizable portion of the U.S. population that doesn't even believe that climate change exists. And so as a young person, what I'm focused on is advocacy. And then after I finish my university studies, um, then I'm really going to be focused on climate mitigation and implementation. And just going back a little bit to uh, when you were talking before about the climate cardinals clubs in schools and so on, what advice could you give to schools who might be interested in this program or might like to set something up themselves? So anyone who is interested can go to Climate Cardinals website and they can apply to form a chapter in their community or in their school. Uh, and basically what you would do is you would translate documents that you think are pertinent to either your community or other communities, similar to how I translated documents into Farsi to educate my relatives in Iran. People can do the same thing under adult supervision and get community service hours for that work. This is a podcast made by the British Council, who are a very different kind of organisation to Climate Cardinals. It was established in 1934, it has strong links to the British government, and in terms of language, its emphasis is predominantly on English. What do you think organisations such as the British Council and, and others like that should be doing in terms of the language and the climate crisis? I think that for any organizations that have information that is relevant to the general international population, it's incredibly crucial to be translating that information into other languages so that other people can really become aware of the issues that are facing us. Because obviously, like everyone is being affected by climate change, but not everyone speaks English. And so it doesn't make sense to be continuing to broadcast this message in what really becomes kind of an echo chamber when there are so many people around the world who are living in communities that are really being hit by climate change. Like like we were talking about climate refugees, people who are living on coastlines, and they don't even know that what's happening to them is directly a consequence of climate change and inaction on climate change. And so I would say that Maybe not like it's not like 100% crucial and necessary for podcasts like this to be translated into other languages, especially because not every organization has the resources to commission translations. But entities like the United Nations for governmental organizations that are commissioning reports that directly relate to what the state of our planet is and what we need to do in terms of climate ambitions, that's information that's relevant to the international general population. 
And so especially because those organizations have so many resources, I really do think that they have an obligation to be translating this information to make sure that it's accessible. Are there other ways you think that speakers of minority languages can be engaged more in the in the process? Definitely. I think that we just need to make our decision making tables more inclusive and more diverse. I think that we need to broaden our searches when we're looking for representatives, when we're looking for people to come to international climate discussions to ensure that everyone's voice is included, including those who are the most vulnerable to climate change's effects, and especially those who have firsthand witnessed the impacts of climate change and can speak to it. And are there things that you think policymakers in the global north can learn from groups and individuals in the global south? I think that everyone can learn something from people who share a different perspective than them. I think that's kind of the beauty of things like the UN Youth Advisory Group, where we have these seven people who come from different corners of the world with different experiences, different ages, and different really backgrounds, because we've all experienced the effects of climate change differently. We're all focused on different strategies in terms of mitigation and awareness. And so there's we, we can all stand to learn something from people who share a different perspective than us. And finally, Sophia, how important do you think the upcoming COP26 is? I always try to remain optimistic about the future, especially because I work with so many amazing young people every single day who really give me hope that even if our current governmental leaders aren't taking the climate crisis seriously, that the next generation of leaders absolutely will. At least that's my hope. And so I do hope that going into COP26, we'll see that these people who genuinely care about climate change are given the platforms that they need to talk about these issues and to put pressure on elected officials to take action. I think that in the U.S. with the recent change in administration, it's definitely hardening that we've re-entered the Paris Climate Agreement. And so I think that we're at a different place now and hopefully a better place. And especially in wake of COVID-19, I think that there's a lot of things we can do to build back our economies greener and more sustainably. So I think that COP26 will be a great launch pad to determine what the next steps really need to be to keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Thank you very much for your time, Sophia. Of course, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much to Sophia. You can find out more about Climate Cardinals and potentially get involved from their website, climatecardinals.org. Talking about climate change is always difficult. In Colombia, the greatest challenge to this issue would be to try to reduce the activities that affect it, such as the burning of fossil fuels, oil, gas and coal, and the removal of forests, among others. In each episode of The Climate Connection, we explore the language of the climate crisis with our partners at Oxford University Press. In keeping with the main theme of this episode, the focus of the Green Glossary is perhaps the most famous youth climate activist in the world, Greta Thunberg. The Green Glossary. The Green Glossary. Brought to you by Oxford University Press. Hello, my name is Rosamond Irons and I'm an editor involved in revising the Oxford English Dictionary. Greta Thunberg's school strike outside the Swedish Parliament captured the imagination of young people worldwide. 
So I thought we'd look at the impact the so-called Greta effect has had on English. One of the many new terms we're currently considering for inclusion in the OED is school strike. It's a term that's been applied to various protests staged by teachers, parents and students. There's evidence for this term going back to at least the 19th century. And the Google Books Ngram viewer, which gives a graphic representation of the way usage of words varies over time, suggests that there was actually a peak in usage around 1971. It's fairly transparent in meaning, which is why it may not previously have been considered for inclusion in the dictionary. Yet it's probably thanks to Greta Thunberg and her fellow school strikers, who in turn sparked the global Fridays for Future hashtag and the climate strike movement of the same name, that it's come to have a more specific meaning that may merit a dictionary entry. School strike is an example of compounding, which is a very common way of forming new terms in English. We'll cover compounding in more depth in episode 5 when we discuss carbon footprint. But thinking about the Greta effect gives us the chance to look at some other ways in which terms enter the language. Firstly, we can take a look at the use of names or proper nouns. These aren't usually included in a standard dictionary. But when the name of a person or place comes to be used in place of a common noun, it can sometimes enter the dictionary as what we call an eponym. Although sometimes names become standalone words, as in the verb to boycott, more commonly a name gets used as the first element in a compound, as in Canada goose, a goose associated with Canada. Similarly, in the language of climate change, we find the Greta effect, or the Attenborough effect, where the names of Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough are used to modify the noun effect to indicate the different ways in which each of them has had an effect on public awareness of the climate emergency. Before we consider an eponym for inclusion in the dictionary, we need to see evidence of it being used over a period of years and in a consistent sense or senses. So at the moment, it's still too early to say whether we'll include these ones, but we'll continue to monitor them over the coming years. Secondly, one of the most effective ways in which language has been used to engage the public in the debate over climate has been the use of metaphors and analogies. One of the problems with getting people to accept the reality of the climate crisis may be a lack of scientific literacy and understanding. This is especially true for older generations for whom climate science was traditionally covered in school as a small part of geography and in many cases then forgotten. When scientists start using long words, many people just stop listening. That's why the term greenhouse effect has been such an effective analogy. Most people, whether or not they're scientifically literate, will have experienced the way a glazed building or a car heats up inside, sometimes to an unpleasant degree when the sun's shining on it. What you might find more surprising is that greenhouse effect has a longer history than the recent climate emergency. It's a term that refers to the natural protective blanketing effect of atmospheric gases that has kept the Earth at a higher and therefore pleasanter temperature than would otherwise be the case. Only in the late 20th century did it come to be associated with the excessive global warming caused by human emissions of those gases, which in turn came to be known as greenhouse gases. Another problem with public engagement is the geographical distance between those who are the main culprits of the climate crisis who are generally in economically developed countries, and those who've been suffering the worst effects of climate change, for example, natural disasters, desertification, 
and the need to migrate to more secure areas, who are generally in less developed nations. The average person in a richer country is often still living relatively comfortably and may not feel that this is a problem that concerns them until it's too late. The activities of climate-aware groups, such as Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion, aim to shake the complacency of these more fortunate people and governments. Some have used actions such as climate strikes and other forms of non-violent protest. Others have used words. For instance, we've been monitoring the emergence of the term degrowth in challenging the orthodoxy of pursuing economic growth at all costs. We'll discuss that in another episode. Some of the most powerful terms are metaphors such as ticking time bomb, overshoot and tipping point. These are used to convey the idea that we've exceeded the planet's limits and are in danger of reaching a disastrous point of no return. But there's a slight danger with the use of these metaphors that they are so removed from the story they're trying to tell that, especially with repetition, they become meaningless. Storytelling, one of the oldest uses of language that predates widespread literacy, has increasingly been used by documentary makers to give a human face to the individuals and communities most affected by climate change. For instance, those whose land and livelihoods have disappeared with rising sea levels, or those who've lost their homes or family members to forest fires. One of the most powerful uses of metaphor and analogy I've seen was used by Fridays for Future. This uses a different kind of storytelling in the form of a short film in which a stereotypical white American family shown happily going about their morning routines in a comfortable house in the suburbs, all the time strangely oblivious to the fact that large parts of their house are burning. It's a very powerful image, playing on the idea that the earth is our home, an idea inherent in words beginning eco, as we'll discuss in the next episode. It invites those who are currently comfortable in their home not to be complacent about that continuing to be the case in the current crisis by drawing an analogy between our individual homes and the planet as a whole, and by questioning why we are so unconcerned about the crisis facing that wider home. The message appears only at the end of the film. It uses very few words, but it's all the more powerful for that. It consists of a phrase used by Greta Thunberg and a one-word call to action, which appear over two silent full-screen captions at the end. Our house is on fire. React. The Climate Connection. Hello everyone. I'm Ishwarya and I'm an English teacher from Delhi, India. I believe that any kind of progress my students make, whether big or small, is always an achievement. So today, I'm going to talk about a well-crafted climate-related lesson in which I prepared grade 5 students for an inter-house talk show competition where I chose the leading climate activist Greta Thunberg to be interviewed. In the whole training, the students were asked to go through the videos of Greta and read about her. Though they have been given the script to prepare themselves, both as an interviewer and interviewee, but I believe that a connect was required. Thankfully, this connect with the world's dire climate problems simultaneously built with the training of the event. The show was 
also stolen by the interviewer as he was grabbing the spotlight with his excitement to meet Greta. The best part was when Greta told the host that she set an example of not flying rather sailing to North America to attend UN Climate Action Summit. Sarcastically, the host replied, that is impressive. But he remembered he hadn't done it as a kid and he would not do it now. So the interview question answers comprise of her background, parents' reaction, the controversy and message to young people. After a month's training, it was a pleasure to see the knowledge of ecological crisis and its effect on our planet incorporated in children. To my surprise, the girl who was playing Greta's role was exactly copying her emotions for the climate change. That is my learning too. Language for the planet. Thank you. Climate Connection. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you would like bonus material, show notes, or to download episode 1 in case you missed it, please go to our website www.britishcouncil.org/climate-connection. And please join us again for episode 3, Language Recycling, where we will be exploring what teaching and learning methods can effectively address the climate crisis. Until then, Goodbye. The climate connection. La connexion climatique. Die Klimakonnektivität. La connexion climatica. The Regenerative. Yeah, I've already done a couple of these today because I was uh, talking to Australia, so I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, don't worry about it. No, this no. is the right. Let's, editing, go, right? let's go again. No, it's all going to be edited. Yeah, and it makes me look stupid anyway, so don't worry. Okay. The Climate Connection.